0: Hello. I'm Tracy King. Welcome to the Human Animal Connection podcast. Animal. Animal. Oh, animal. This is the first of 7 podcasts celebrating the Trust's 7th birthday. In this series, we're going to bring human and veterinary medical professionals together to discuss a variety of topics related to one medicine, ranging from sustainable practice, reciprocal learning between vets and doctors, mental health and wellness, and much more. We want these podcasts to kickstart healthy debate amongst members of the Hub, so we'll be inviting you to comment on the HUB Forum at the end of the show. No, no. Easy, easy. And that was the sound of a white rhino charging a car in Kruger National Park in South Africa. Later in this episode, that's exactly where we're going to talk to Dr. Johan Marais, founder of the organisation Saving the Survivors. But before that, and in a slightly safer environment, I'm delighted to be joined by Animal Trustees, Professor Roberto Lavaggioni and Dr. Ben Marshall, who are going to shed some light on the origins of the Animal Trust. Rob, hello. You are Professor of Veterinary Microbiology and Pathology at the University of Surrey. Can you tell us how you got involved in Human Animal Trust and what your role here is?
1: Yes, of course, it would be my pleasure to. So um, it, the trust was founded in 2014 by the world-renowned um, uh, orthopaedic veterinary surgeon Professor Noel Fitzpatrick. And really with the emphasis uh, of the main aim is to drive collaboration between vets, doctors and researchers in order to promote one medicine and enable learning from both vets and medics to be shared for the benefit of both humans and animals. And I think I got involved because my whole career has been focused around the relationship between animals and humans, particularly in the area of infectious diseases and antimicrobial resistance. And I wanted to ensure that there is a better understanding of One Medicine so that both animals and humans can benefit equally from the progress that has been made through all of the fantastic research that's ongoing in this area.
0: Thanks very much, Rob. And Ben, if I could come to you, can you tell our listeners about what the One Medicine concept is and why you got involved with Human Animal Trust?
2: Thanks, Tracy. Yes, as Rob has said, One Medicine is the concept that human and veterinary medicine are interlinked and interdependent upon each other. Um, The common knowledge between both animal and human health has existed for a long, long time since Greek and Roman eras. And as a concept or a paradigm, One Medicine promotes collaboration between the medical and veterinary disciplines to benefit both human and animal health. It's a brilliant concept. Um, Sadly, uh, I think there has been divergence between the animal and veterinary communities over the years, um, probably since the 19th century. And I suspect that that is one reason that the one medicine concept um, isn't as well uh, versed in, in uh, with the veterinary uh, professions and the medicine professions. So why did I get involved with the Animal Trust? Um, four years ago, my, my colleague and uh, consultant orthopaedic surgeon, Mike Hugler, who was already a trustee, invited me to join. And I have to be honest, I, I didn't really know an awful lot about, um, about One Medicine. I knew about uh, Professor Noel Fitzpatrick, but I wasn't aware of his his charity. So it piqued my curiosity. And suddenly I realized uh, my own beliefs and my own uh, altruism were very much aligned with this concept and with the charity as a whole. And over the last four years since I've been a, a trustee, I've really, really enjoyed embedding myself in the various uh, opportunities that it has afforded, uh, the conferences, uh, the wonderful collaborations with, uh, with other uh, members of um, this fantastic charity, including yourselves. Uh, And it's presented lots and and lots of uh, exciting challenges for me.
0: That's great. Thanks very much, Ben. Some misconceptions have arisen about what One Medicine is. For example, that it's about doctors treating animals and vets treating people. Can I ask both of you why you think these misconceptions have arisen and how we can address some of the challenges that One Medicine faces in being accepted into the mainstream? And perhaps, Rob, if I could start with you, please.
1: I I think this is a a, a big issue and um, one of the main um problems is lack of education from a perspective of early on um, in schools, through undergraduate training and of the general public of what one medicine is and what the concept is. There's also many other terms which are similar which are spoken about a lot and that causes quite a lot of confusion. But I think what we need to get the message across is that it's the study of naturally occurring diseases in animals and humans and understanding that interaction so that we can benefit both species. There's a close relationship between animals and humans and they often share many diseases such as cancer, infectious diseases, things like MRSA um, and arthritis. And we need to put those concepts forward, that actually those diseases are very similar in both humans and animals, and often the treatments are similar, um, and how we diagnose them. And therefore, um, both uh, humans and animals can benefit from much of the research that's ongoing and the developments. And in order to do that, we need to ensure that vets and doctors and researchers working in the allied fields all communicate together and actually share their research and share the knowledge which they're gaining through uh, their various studies in
2: order to take things forward for both animals and humans. So yes, I echo what um, Rob has been saying. It's interesting that perhaps other contributory factors for this divergence um, uh, could include the fact that our various schools are often distant from each other, so there are uh, combined veterinary and medical schools um, within the UK, but there are also other other schools that are spatially distant from each other and in different locations. So I don't think that helps. But despite this current disconnect, human and veterinary medicine do share a lot of commonalities together. Rob's out- outlined some of them, but you know we have similar length of training on our various courses, a common clinical language across the human veterinary world very high standards of our patient care. We both as professions exhibit empathy and compassion and love for for the patients that we look after. There are common bodies of knowledge, for example, in the fields of anatomy and physiology and genetics, cell biology, common disease interests, common disease challenge solutions, and no- nothing is greater illustrated by the the uh, the current global pandemic with uh, COVID-19, and also shared ethical challenges too. We can learn so much from each other in the in our two professions. And um, one of the things I've really valued about uh, working with the human Animal Trust is is meeting vets such as uh, Professor Fitzpatrick and learning from from what they bring to the table. Um, I, you know, I've been really humbled um, as a as a health clinician, as a respiratory physician um, about what progress and what advances have been made in the fields of veterinary medicine which I can see as so applicable to to my fields as well. I would say in conclusion it's better together and if we can get that overarching message across to our audience then, then we've done a good job.
1: I echo Ben's comments and certainly um, together is better. I, I think given the current pandemic we we've seen that working together um, both vets and doctors and researchers is essential when we're tackling health issues in in both animals and humans and that close relationship needs to be fostered more and i see that going forward the relationship between vets and doctors and researchers will become closer there'll be more interface between those different professions and certainly in my role as a trustee and chair of the trustees for the Human Animal Trust, I've enjoyed so much my interaction with different professions and particularly the medical profession where we can compare the different areas of interest, whether that's looking at arthritis, diabetes or pathology. There's so many similarities. And those initial discussions are what lead to the bigger projects and our better understanding of the disease processes, both in animals and humans. So, um, together is definitely better.
0: One medicine is probably most well-known for its study of animal health to benefit humans. But we rarely hear about techniques from human medicine being applied to animals. So, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Johan Marais, founder of the organisation Saving the Survivors. Founded in 2012, this team of wildlife vets work in Kruger National Park, developing innovative techniques based on human medicine. Johan, welcome. Could you start by giving us a little about your background and tell us what motivated you to start Saving the Survivors? Hi, see it's,
3: uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be talking to you. Thank you very much. I partly grew up in Itocha, in, um, in Namibia, where my father used to be a game ranger. And I think I probably developed my love, you know, for the outdoors and for wildlife then. After that, we uh, moved to South Africa. Um, I was in high school, primary and high school here most of the times. But then I did a veterinary degree. And after that, I decided to actually go into horses first. At that specific time, which was in 1991, there wasn't really a lot of jobs available and job opportunities in wildlife course, our wildlife industry was not really that well developed. So the only jobs that was really available was basically in your national park. And those were such, uh, you know, sought-after jobs that the people that normally, uh, you know, got those jobs stayed in them lifelong. So I decided to go into, into horses, um, which I did. I eventually went into academia, and I worked in the equine clinic at our local veterinary school, um, uh, which is based just north of of, of Pretoria. Probably around about 28, 2010, our wildlife industry really developed quite a lot. And um, we started to get involved in in different kinds of wildlife more and more and more. But it was not really until probably 2010, 2012, that we we really started focusing on treating rhino. The rhino poaching really started uh, on a low scale in 2008 but then developed quickly and and you know the numbers increased exponentially by 2010 2011 we were already losing about 400 rhino a year um and then in 2012 i realized that i think there needs to be something done and we need to treat the survivors of these poaching incidents especially the ones um which you know suffered from fractures or gunshot wounds, or also the ones where where they dart these rhino and and the hack of the horn, you know. So basically, there's nothing wrong with these animals except you know that they've got these large gaping wounds. You know, you have uh, lots of humans also with terrible wounds, and and you know there's enough medicine available and knowledge available to treat these wounds. And you know, I just thought. Surely we can apply that to, you know, to these large animals and see if we can't save them, um, you know, just to try and save their genetics for future breeding.
0: Johan, the rising incidence is shocking, but the work that you're doing at least gives us a sense of hope. Could you perhaps provide us some context by describing the environment you're working in?
3: Sorry, so in the beginning, we thought of... Building uh, a large facility close to one of your larger towns like Pretoria or Johannesburg, you know, to bring these large animals there and to treat them at a central place. That eventually, you know, did not happen and it was almost impossible to do as we realized very quickly that the moment you remove these animals, uh, you know, from their environment, it becomes really difficult, you know, for them to transport them. And also you put them in a completely new environment where they stress, where they're not used to the, you know, the feeding, the watering and all of those. So eventually we decided just to treat these survivors in the natural environment. And that basically includes places like Kruger National Park. It includes a lot of other private reserves, uh, you know, private um, game reserves. And these, you know, can vary greatly from normal bush to open savannah, uh, to, you know, Mupani felt, which is in Druga National Park, quite a lot in the north, and also, um, you know, mountainous areas, which m- eventually makes it quite challenging, and there's rivers flowing through, you know, I recall a specific rhino, for instance, that we darted um, probably two hours from here, and um, in that whole property, <laughs> there's only one river, a smallish river, playing through that property. And we darted the animal and we tried to push him up away from the river. But he was extremely <laughs> stubborn, yeah. you know, so much so that he eventually went down in the river and we were forced to wake him up immediately. Otherwise, they drown when the animal and if the animal goes down in water, you must be at hand to, you know, to keep the head above the water and probably eight or nine out of ten times it's better just to reverse them and try and immobilize them again the next day.
0: One of the first survivors that you treated was a white rhino called Tandy. Could you tell us a bit more about her story and how she's doing now?
3: Yes, Tandy was a, was a beautiful white rhino cow that was actually also darted with veterinary drugs. There was a a whole gang that was operating in the east eastern pad one of our provinces in, in southern south africa um and they got a hold of veterinary drugs where they used to uh dart these animals and the reason why they don't shoot them it's because a darting is completely quiet so i can dart an animal within probably 30, 40 meters from you and you won't even know it so they darted this you know, this animal act off her horns and just instead of waking her up again, you know, they just leave the animal and they, uh, you know, go off with the horns. The reserve management then found her the next morning, called in the local vet, which was Dr. William Folds, And then he eventually contacted us and said, can we please come down and assist him in, you know, treating this animal? As I said, this was, I think this was the very first survivor we ever treated. And, you know, when he actually showed me photos of it, I thought, that is really not possible. Um, you know, we're not used to these kind of large injuries and it got completely into our paranatal sinuses and we really didn't know what to do. So we just basically applied normal surgical principles and normal wound principles. Um, and eventually, she healed actually very, very well. You know, so much so that in January of this year, she had her first uh her uh, fourth calf. And I think, you know, Tracy, that's what people sometimes forget. Often we get asked, but why do you spend so much money, for instance, in just treating one survivor, which in this case was a white rider female, uh, you know, but but what people actually forget is that you're not only saving that animal you know when that animal goes on and they have one two or three or four calves like in this case with she's already had four calves we've actually saved five animals you contribute you know to the larger meta population and you also help you know for that animal not to lose its genetics there was a There was a study done probably four or five years ago on black rhino, which came out that said we've lost over the last fifty years, we lost sixty-nine percent of of the genetics of black rhino because they went down from seventy thousand animals to less than five thousand. So surely we don't want, you know, the same to happen to white rhino. We've already lost the white rhino population from about approximately twenty twenty two thousand animals to about 12,000 animals, you know, so that's already, uh, you know, um, too many rhino and too many, you know, genetics that's been lost.
0: In a way, you're becoming part of the natural selection process. Do you ever find yourself having to make difficult decisions?
3: I always say if we have to really make a decision between a cow and a bull, you know, we will always feed a cow because you need uh, you know many more cows to breed obviously than bulls. Uh, you can always put one bull with, uh, you know, with you know let's say five or six or seven cows Uh so if, if there are really not funds available we would rather choose you know, in inverted commas to you know to treat you know females than males but I think at the end of the day uh, the way it's been over the last 10 years I think it's, it's, it's probably better to save just every single white and black rhino that you come across at, at this point in time
0: can you tell us a little about how you've developed or adapted human medical techniques for animals yes
3: so that was quite challenging in the beginning Tracy. to to you know first of all decide to actually go forth and treat some of these injuries because I don't think you know, any of us uh, and our colleagues, arbitrary our colleagues in this country have ever been confronted with these kind of injuries. Uh, I think this was very new to us. And initially we were quite, I think, apprehensive to actually treat these injuries. But one colleague said to me, he said, well, if we're not going to treat these injuries, then we have to put this animal down. So what have we got to lose? Either it doesn't work, then we'd try something else. And we, the most important injuries we probably treat in especially rhino over the last eight to 10 years is, is basically those massive facial injuries where both horns get hacked off, uh, you know, either at skin level, which currently we, um, it might not seem like that, but we actually classify that as a less, you know, less severe injury, although it still looks horrible. And then the really severe facial injuries where people had have this belief that the horn actually grows to below the skin so they remove probably the top 10 to 15 centimeters of you know the rhino's tissue to just above the um eyes so there's a massive massive wound there which is right into your paranasal sinuses. They actually remove some of the bone as well. And you can see clearly your nasal septum. Then there's fractures as well when they shoot them. And, you know, because of the way a rhino lies down, they often cause these fractures in the lower limb of rhino. And then many, many gunshot wounds, whether it is just in normal tissue, whether it is into the forelumb, into, into the abdomen or then into the thorax as well. I think we've made quite a lot of uh, progression into the first two, which is your fatal injuries and practice. We're actually quite uh, experts on treating those still, but we're still struggling to a certain extent with gunshot wounds. And, uh, you know, rhino right are pachyderms, which means they've got very, very thick skin. So it's really difficult to get access even to a gunshot wound that is, let's say, 10 to 15 centimeters deep. You have to make a massive incision into the skin just to be able to get to the bottom of that wound. And you don't always want to do that, you know, to create such a massive wound, you know, when there's just a small wound of, let's say, one by one centimeter. So, you know, just to get, uh, you know, access to the bullet uh, and to provide drainage and stuff like that. But uh, but that is, you know, still quite a big challenge for us to treat.
0: Johan, you've you've mentioned about metafacial injuries and you've mentioned about gunshot wounds and, and that you you were initially looking to what human medicine was doing. Do you think it would be of benefit to the work that SAVE and the survivors are doing to have doctors working alongside you in the field? So could it be like a two-way exchange? Do you think there's anything that doctors could learn from what you're doing in the field in terms of dealing with risk and trauma?
3: You know, we're not islands. Um, you know, we do know that human, that human medicine, uh, you know, far more advanced than, for instance, you know, veterinary medicine because there's just, you know, because it's humans that they treat and the funding is there to, you know, to normally do that kind of re- research where it is not available in veterinary science for instance to do, you know, the same kind of research. so So I have in the past actually had medical doctors accompany me. You know, do some of these injuries, you know, just to get a different perspective. I remember one case, which is a black rhino, which was shot in the foot. And it was, you know, so severe that a piece of the bone stuck through, which we had to to amputate. And this specific wound just didn't want to heal for about four or five months. And I took medical doctors with me, you know, just to give me input on this. You know, they were brilliant. So... uh, I think we would definitely welcome, you know, the input in all of these cases, in the fatal, you know, injuries, in the, the treatment of fractures, and especially on gunshot wounds. So, you know, I think the medical doctors are, are far more experts uh, for instance, in in treating gunshot wounds than you know than us. So we would definitely welcome their input. Um,
0: what sort of problems do you encounter when you bring human medical help to a veterinary situation?
3: If that often I would phone a medical specialist and say to him, listen, I've got a rhino, uh, it's got a, you know, let's say this large facial injury, um, I've been treating with A, B and C, I cannot seem to heal it or I cannot seem to get closure of the wound or I'm struggling to uh, to actually put, you know, suture material through the skin, and he would give me, he or she would give me input. And I would say, but that's not gonna work. Or, you know, B and C is definitely not gonna work. And these guys don't seem to understand why not. Whereas, uh, and you know, with all due respect, um, I think that is, you know, that is quite a big problem because most of them has, never been present with one of these injuries next to a rhino. So they, you know, they cannot comprehend um, the actual extent of these injuries. And also, you know, what is a, a, a massive problem in these uh, animals like rhino is they've got an exceedingly thick skin. And we're talking probably two to three centimeters. So, you know, a basic, a basic, basic thing like, Tutoring, uh you know, the wound of, or, you know, be able to put sutures through the wound in the face of a rhino is almost completely impossible just because of the thickness of the skin. However, when I have these guys with me and next to me and we stand next to this rhino and they see the extent and they see our difficulties, then it's almost like a lot almost like a light bulb going on and they go okay now we understand what you've been talking about okay you know let's think about this how to actually proceed from here so i often think it is important to you know to get these guys to go to an injury with me uh you know for really for them to see the extent of them you know of, of these injuries for themselves
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Two two to three centimetres thick, the skin of a rhino.
3: Absolutely. We, for instance, have been working, Tracy, for the last probably year and a half, almost two years, on a specific instrument that would help us, you know, just put sutures in the facial area of a rhino. You know, the skin is not that thick over the entire rhino. For instance, on the distal limb, you know, just above the foot, uh, the skin is almost the thickness of our human skin. You know, if you ever have a wind there, it's, it's really easy to put in sutures, but for instance, around the face, it is, uh, it is, uh, you know, I'm telling you, it's almost impossible to put any kind of suture with any kind of um, needle, you know, to go through that scheme. They all just bend or they break off. And, you know, that has been quite a large challenge over the last probably six to eight years last.
0: The pandemic has given us an opportunity for change in many aspects of life because we've had a chance to reflect. Do you think this is also an opportunity to see change in South Africa in the way in which endangered wildlife is protected?
3: If we can really get political will You know to look after our wildlife and to protect species like elephant and rhino it would be brilliant um apparently over the last couple of years our elephant poaching seems to have been quieting a little bit down but there's two species for instance that are are still being poached at an alarming rate and that and those are pangolins and rhino uh, and it just cannot continue like that. Um, we, had, we had the statistics made available just over the last three months of the white rhino in Kruger National Park. So the numbers in 2008 of our white rhino in Kruger National Park was 10,500. And in 2019, they were a mere 3,500. Okay, so that is quite a massive drop. And uh, you know what? That is not sustainable in the long run. Uh, you know, we do, we do realize that there will always be a low level of poaching. But if we lose like pre-2008, maybe five to 10 animals or 20 animals a year, you know, I think we can all live with it. But to lose in excess of a thousand animals between, I think, 2013 and 2017, each year we lost a thousand animals five years in a row. Um, and to go from 10,500 to 3,500 is you know, it's just not on, it, 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 it's actually shocking, and you know, that's only within Kruger National Park. Then we're not even talking about any of the other parks or with the private rhino owners all right they obviously also lost rhino so we really really need political will. you know the other thing which i think is really important is is globally i think our wildlife is really under threat um and our biodiversity is under threat i think in the last i think wwf gave us a report in the last two years that said in the last 50 years, there's been a 60% decline in mammals, birds, fish, and reptiles. One of the major, major causes of that uh, growth is habitat loss. Habitat loss due to either destruction or or, fragmentation due to agriculture or land conversion for development, um you know then obviously pollution in the land and in the sea uh, and climate change i mean is a huge issue and then of course invasive species uh so i think what we as a species as a human species need to do and what i would really like to see here as well and in the rest of the world is is really land you know these large tracts of land to protect species and biodiversity. Yes, we can, you know, we can, you know, obviously focus on, you know, species like elephant and rhino and pangolin and so on, but there's so many other species of, of reptiles and butterflies and pangolin and amphibians. You know that also needs protection. And if we, you know, can get it right to protect large um, tract of land that will automatically you know protect um, you know obviously rhino and elephant which in itself needs these large pieces of land but but by default we are protecting all the other, all the other fauna and flora you know within that piece of land as well like the water and uh, you know the butterflies and the small geckos, and the tortoises um, and all those animals as well, which I think in the in the biggest scheme of things, that's almost more important is to protect you know the planet's biodiversity. Because if the biodiversity goes, then I think we have a massive problem uh, as a human species to to actually um, you know be here in in fifty years as well. I think then. We probably also must look at other planets, are probably too to go to, but I don't think we'll make it.
0: So, finally, Johan, if any medical professionals or any of our listeners want to get involved with the work that you are doing at Saving the Survivors, are there any collaborations that you're looking for, and how can they get involved with your organization?
3: You know, as I mentioned earlier i would love to, you know, to collaborate more with medical professionals specifically with regard to gunshot wound treatments um, you know just because i think they do many more than us uh wound treatments i think the medical profession is is, is far advanced with uh, you know with all due respect with relating to veterinary treatment of wounds um, and also to fractures um but they can also get involved in, you know, some research we're doing, for instance, normal basic um, anatomical research. But I think the two or three most important things are probably gunshot wound treatments and wound treatments in, in Rhino. And they can, you know, they can either email me directly at Johan at johan.savingthesurvivors.org or they can go onto our website, which is www.savingthesurvivors.org and just get in, uh, in contact with us there.
0: Fantastic, and we'll make sure that we signpost to your website um, on the details that you've just given us. Johan raises some vital issues from the vantage point of the field. They highlight the importance of the Stronger Together message, one of the central tenets of One Medicine. His words align with those made by our founder, Professor Noel Fitzpatrick, on why such approaches are so crucial as the planet is edged closer to its tipping point. Noel makes it clear that displacing long-term investment in balanced ecosystems with short-term thinking about profit is taking humanity to the brink. It's ironic that during these COVID lockdowns, we have held onto our animal friends to get us through the loneliness of isolation, while so many other species are slipping from our careless grasp. For that reason, Human Animal Trust will not rest until humans and animals benefit at the same time from medical progress. If you love and respect all animals and want to see a fairer world for us all, please support One Medicine lives depend on it in our next episode we'll be going beneath the sea to explore how techniques developed for human medicine are being applied to treat marine mammals if you want to join in the One Medicine conversation, then please feel free to respond to any of the issues raised in this podcast on the Hub Forum.